Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans 3. Um, I'm really doing my very best not to steal the thunder of your elders who have just started an excellent series of Sunday school lectures on Romans, on the book of Romans, and so I'm not going to preach beyond Romans 3 next week, sorry, not, not Romans 4 anyway. And, uh, but I did want to use these messages to draw your attention to the importance of keeping the main thing, the main thing in Christ's covenant as we move forward in this time of transition. And you remember the context here, Paul has been unpacking the great need of both Gentile and Jew for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he has shown the Gentiles to be guilty. The wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul says, because what's known of God is manifest to them, for God Himself has shown it to them. If you're not a believer here this morning, maybe you've never been to church before, Paul is saying to you, God is saying to you, you know who God is. God has shown it to you, and God has revealed it in you. You might pride yourself that you don't believe in God if, if let's say, you're an atheist, but God doesn't believe in atheists. He has revealed Himself to all men, and yet all men, by nature, we suppress that truth. And Paul's been driving that message home relentlessly in chapter 1, showing that uh, this godless culture that a godless mind produces full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness and so forth, Paul says, that all comes from the Gentile habit of not wanting to retain God in their knowledge. And God has given them over to this lifestyle. And the Jews are saying, Amen, chapter 1. And chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. He's saying, you know enough to condemn the Gentiles. You just don't know enough to condemn yourselves. And you're inexcusable, Paul says to the Jew, whoever you are who judge, for in what you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice exactly the same kinds of sins, Paul says. There's a, a, a paper-thin veneer uh, covering your Jewish religiosity in both the Old Testament and in the New. And Paul says the key thing about being a Jew is not the outward thing, it's the inner thing. He is not a Jew in the Old Testament, not just in the New. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's Paul's point. Now, if you're following Paul's point, you're thinking, well, then what advantage then has the Jew? And I would say this, actually, beware any preacher who so stresses the covenant of God that makes you really doubt your children's need of the gospel of God. If someone's preaching properly, you should be left wondering, well, well then, what is the advantage of circumcision? What is the advantage of baptism? If, if, if the Jewishness cannot save the Jew, if Presbyterianism or baptism cannot save the Baptist or the Presbyterian child of the church, what advantage then is there in being a covenant member of the church? If, if, if our children need Christ just as much as the Gentile children, 
What advantage do they have? And that's exactly where Paul is going. Let's read together the Word of God. And again, if you will bear with me, I'm going to read to you in the New King James Version. This is the Word of God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They've been given light from heaven. They've not been left in the darkness. They've been given the Word of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. But then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. That's that's the best you can be as a Jew. That's the best you can be as a Gentile. That's the best you can be as a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Congregationalist. Without Christ, the best you can be is under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, in contrast to that, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, apart from your law-keeping, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. So, we've been looking at these early chapters of Romans to encourage you as a church to keep the main things the main thing, to keep the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, that Scripture is our only rule of faith and practice. Solus Christus, Christ alone, that we're saved because of Christ. We're not saved because we believe. We're not saved because we repent. We're not saved because we are sanctified. We're not saved because we're reformed. We're not saved because we're catechized. We're not saved because we keep the Lord's day. We're saved only and simply because of Christ. Sola fide, we're saved by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone because of God's wonderful, penchant, forgiving grace and love to those who deserve His wrath and His curse. And soli Deo Gloria, we're saved for the glory of God alone. And you put that together, that's the sum and substance of the gospel, not just the Reformed gospel, but the biblical gospel. And when it's preached in the experiential power of the Holy Spirit, these five solas all become different facets of the jewel of what we call preaching a felt Christ. And it's the rallying rallying cry of this church. It was before I came. It was when I came. And by God's grace, I'm confident that through your elders' leadership, it'll be the rallying cry of this church. After I leave you, this gospel won't leave you. But I do want to, the reason I've been going through these chapters is because I I perceive two distinct threats. If you think of the gospel of a felt Christ, the five solas experienced in the power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit, you think of that as a narrow little road that leads to heaven. On either side of that road, there are two ditches that flank the road, and the Reformed Church is veering into one or other ditches in many areas. On the one hand, there's the ditch of the social gospel. I don't see any immediate risk of you all falling into that. Many of you have come from a church that has been swept aside by the social gospel, and you've seen how that gospel eviscerates the church of its power and its fruitfulness. And by social gospel, I mean a church that makes its primary endeavor rescuing men from the injustice of man which is a terrible thing and a good thing for the church to do. But if it becomes the main thing a church is about, the church will forget the secret of its real power, which is not rescuing men from human injustice. It's rescuing men from the justice of God Himself. And the only remedy of that is the gospel, of course. But on the other side of the the road, the left side is the social gospel. The ditch on the right-hand side is a legalistic gospel. And that is a, that is a risk, that, that is a ditch that we very easily could um, veer into. Why? Well, if you think about the Christian life as a tale of two steps or a dance of two steps, you've got indicative and imperative. Indicative is what God has done for us, the truth of the gospel. And the imperative is what we do for God. And the one leads to the other. The indicatives drive the imperatives, right? 
And a church becomes legalistic fundamentally when, it, when the, when the uh, indicatives become assumed, and we kind of push them to one side, and we push them to one side, and we push them to one side, and then, oh, they fall off. And you're left with not what God has done for us, but simply more and more all we hear is what we must do for God. And without the indicatives, the without the indicative truth of the gospel, the imperative truth of the Christian life, the commands become where they lose their power and their persuasion and their pleasantness, their pleasure. What's that look like? Well, churches that lose the indicatives of the gospel, it becomes all about what you must do. You must keep covenant with God. That's the big thing in such churches, all about us keeping covenant, us keeping the Lord's day holy, us being sure that our children are baptized on time, us being sure that we have family worship every single day and twice on Sundays, us being active in the, in the, in the schooling of our children, perhaps even homeschooling our children. And these things become the central facets of a church. The gospel is forgotten. Us being active in pro-life politics and conservative politics, trying to, to, to plant political standards in the ground. Now, all those things are important. All those things are good things. But if they become the main thing at the center of the church, the gospel will be pushed further and further off the side until it becomes… We know that. It's assumed. And it'll all be about what we must do and not what God has done. When that happens, our life, our ministry, our witness will become like chaff, that which is rootless and lifeless and weightless and joyless and worthless. We've got to keep the gospel front and center. And I know you know that. I'm just reminding you of that. And the way to do that is Romans 3. The way to do that is to never tire as a church of hearing a message that, stress, that, that encourages us to embrace the depths of our need. We need to feel our sinfulness, or we'll never be enthralled with feeling our Savior. The one leads to the other. We've got to embrace the depths of our need if we're going to really want to explore the heights of God's grace. And Paul takes you from the one to the other in this chapter as he, first of all, encourages the church to embrace the depths of our sin, the depths of our need. And we see that in these opening verses. We need to preach a gospel that leaves visitor and member alike, baptized child and unbaptized child, with no hope but Jesus. They need, we need to feel our sinfulness. And Paul does that here. It's one of the, it's one of the clearest places in the whole New Testament where Paul unpacks the sinfulness of man, the plight of man. The Jews are left saying, what, are you saying we Jews with our circumcision? I mean, we, 
We rest on the law, Paul. We make our boast in God. We sing the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs. We know His will. We approve the things that are excellent. I, 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 are you saying we're no better than these benighted Gentiles? And so Paul says, no. We have previously charged both Jew and Greek. Jew the best a man can be. Greek, the smartest a man can be. Jew, the great religious specialists. The Greeks, the great philosophical geniuses. Gentiles, the pagans, the best, the worst, the smartest. All of them, Paul says, are under sin, as it is written. And Paul then begins this incredible indictment about human nature. There is none righteous, no, not one. And Paul wants the Jew and the Gentile, he wants you and me, all of us, preacher, elder, deacon, pew-filler, visitor, to feel the weight of what sin has done to us. Only then will we feel the thirst for a Savior of such grand and spectacular proportions as we have in Christ. What has sin done to us? Well, it's left us morally. It's destroyed us morally. There's none righteous, Paul says. No, not one. Now, the word righteous denotes that which measures up to a standard. So, imagine children, you've maybe first, second, third grade, I don't know, and in your math exam, you're asked to draw a circle with a radius of 3.5 centimeters. To do that, you've got a standard. You have to have a, a ruler with centimeter marks on it, and you also have to have a compass to draw a perfect circle. That's the standard. A 6.5-centimeter circle won't do. Any more than a 3.4-centimeter circle, it's got to be a 3.5-centimeter circle, and that radius has got to be consistent all the way around the circumference of the circle. Otherwise, it's not good enough. Now, it doesn't matter how much you love circles. You might love circles. 3.5 centimeters might be your favorite number. Unlikely, but it might be. But if you haven't got a standard and the desire to measure out 3.5 centimeters and then make that the radius, not the diameter of the circle, and then use a, a compass, you can't draw that circle in a way that meets the standard of the examiner. And that's exactly Paul's point. There's none righteous because God expects absolute perfection. You can't freehand your way to a circle that's 3.5 centimeters in diameter. And it won't even be a circle, it'll be a blob. And you can't guess 3.5 centimeters. You've got to have the measurement, the standard. And Paul says, Jews and Greeks and barbarians, it's like grass and weeds in the lawn. And the weeds always grow higher. But the grass and the weeds in the lawn, right? But the standard is the blue sky above you. Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. You've got to feel what sin has done to you morally. Nothing about us is right. Our lives are a mess. It's also destroyed us intellectually. Paul says, there is none who understands. And the word understands means to take the pieces of a thing and put them together into an argument. 
to go from A to B to C to D to E and get to the, the right answer. And Paul says, no one can do that. Not even, not the Gentiles. Remember in the, cha- in the first chapter, he says, and even as the Gentiles do not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's the, they don't want to know God. But the problem is, that same lack of understanding is present by nature in the Jews and in the Presbyterians. And it's so easy to confuse the fact that we're involved in the things of God and to draw the conclusion that therefore we are involved with God. And the two don't always go together. And we need to, that there's none, that our our mind is broken. We can know the answer. But knowing the answer and being able to get to the answer sometimes are very different things. It's like knowing that life should be all about God. That doesn't always help us to make life all about God. Knowing that pride is an ugly thing doesn't make you humble. Knowing that gossip is poisonous doesn't put a lid on your lips. Knowing that sexual immorality is a deviant thing that destroys a person from the inside out doesn't stop the darkness looking bright to your soul. And at that level, we need to realize that our minds are broken. We don't think straight. It's destroyed us morally. It's destroyed us intellectually. Sin's also destroyed us spiritually. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable or worthless, warped, crooked, deviant. That's true of the Gentiles, of course, no no, no doubt there, but it can be equally true of the Jews. How easy it is to pray without praying. How, sorry, yes, how hard it is to praise God. I don't think I've ever in my life ever sang a whole verse of a hymn and meant it focused upon God. I'm always either distracted by my own singing or your singing. Either how bad my singing is most of the time, and occasionally it's, it goes well. I'm singing quite well today. <laughs> oh, I should be thinking about God. Remember the Pharisee? As Jesus says, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. That's a very telling statement. He wasn't praying with God. He was praying to himself. I thank you, Father, that I'm not like other men. Not God. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Unjust, extortioners, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. Remember, Jesus told this parable, Luke says, specifically to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the acid test. How do you know if you're becoming a Pharisee? Because you look down on other people. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, that I go to a Presbyterian church and not a non-denominational church. They have the lights and the big band. So silly. They have the, you know, the performance singers and the, you know, leaning into the microphone and, and playing this with the guitar, and they're so stupid. And we look down our nose at them, and that is the acid test. That we think we deserve to be praised in them. And even if we are right, we should, be, there's just, we should be so convicted by the great gap between where we ought to be, what we know, and how we live, and how we feel. There's no room to condemn other people. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me the sinner. And children, if your covenant theology hasn't taught you to say that, your covenant theology has taught you nothing. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, Jesus says. It's destroyed us. Sin has morally, intellectually, spiritually, relationally. Our words are destructive, and our ways are destructive. When Paul says there's none Jew, Greek, Gentile, none who does good, not even one. And you say, come on, Paul. I mean, really? Those barbarians, the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-
Catechizing your children won't fix the problem. Family worship won't fix the problem. Teaching in the Bible won't fix the problem. Their means God will use, yes, but their only hope is Christ. I can teach Baxter to sit and wait until me to say, free? That does not mean he has good manners. He'll jump up on the table and eat my lunch when I'm not in the room. Bad dog. Now, the means is important. We should raise our children the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that's very important. If we neglect the means, we can expect predictable results. But we mustn't make a savior of the means. Christ is our only, the only hope of our children, and Christ is the only hope of their parents. That's true of the worst of us. It's true of the best of us. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and, and maybe you're not religious. You're just visiting the church for a reason. And maybe you think to yourself, you know, I'm a good person. I don't need the gospel. Let me explain to you why that's not true. Imagine, and I got this from Tim Keller's illustration, but imagine there's a, there's, there's a widow in South America somewhere living in a shanty town in Venezuela, in Tegucigalpa or somewhere, and she's in this shanty town. Two pieces of corrugated iron and a lean-to roof and a mud floor. And she's a widow. And she's got one son or daughter. And every piece of food she has, she lets that child eat more than she needs, more than she gets. And it's all about the child. She's helping the child. All the money she has, she scrapes together from doing odd jobs here and there, cleaning jobs here and there. And and she saves her money, and she feeds this child, and she saves up enough to send the child to America, and the child goes to America and goes to a college and gets a degree and graduates, and that child goes forth. That child is a great person, works hard, um, has a good job, cuts his neighbor's lawn when he's on vacation, because it, it looks good for the reputation, of course. Takes the trash out in the office, because that's also good for the team building. But, but everyone speaks highly of this child, but this child never ever thinks about their mother. When the mother calls on the cell phone, it's straight to voicemail. Never, never takes her call, never gives thanks to God for her, never thanks her. Child becomes rich, never sends any money back to mom to help her, even though mom's sick and dying in hospital. Total, a thankless wretch of a child. And all of the, all of the moral things that child does doesn't, can't make up for the fact that the child is a thankless wretch, right? Well, that's like moral people in this world that never think of their Creator, that never worship Him, that never care to hear His Word. What would the angel say about a human being made in God's image, made by God, made for God, and made to enjoy life with God, to be beckoned into the fellowship of the Trinity? And the, the person said, no, I don't want that. And turn aside and walk off. It doesn't matter how good you are, how well you work, how nice your yard is, you can't make up for that. that. That is an act of cosmic treason and ingratitude that makes the angels gasp. You can't be a good person if you're so ungrateful, which is exactly what sin has done to us, right? 
And we need to feel that, not just visitors, but we need to feel what sin has done for us. Because if we forget that, we'll start to become a little bit proud of who we are. Like an article I saw recently in, in the news, I've never visited this website, but it was an article in the news, and it talked about this, this niche dating site called beautifulpeople.com. And the church can become that if you forget the gospel. Beautifulpeople.com. And look at you, you're beautiful. So well put together, presented, lovely. A place, beautifulpeople.com, where you can connect with beautiful men and women in your local area and from around the world. According to their website, here's how you can join what they call their elite online club. Applicants are required to be voted in by existing members of the opposite sex. Members rate new applicants over a 48-hour period based on whether or not they find the applicant beautiful. Should applicants secure enough positive votes from members, they'll be granted membership to be part of the beautifulcommunity.com. This screening process allows members to avoid what they call the riffraff. This dating pool for the genetically blessed came under fire recently for ousting some 5,000 members. Why? Well, for the sin of packing on a few pounds over the holidays. The site says it has a strict ban on ugly people and issued a news release saying the cuts were made after many members posted photographs of themselves looking plump in the weeks after Thanksgiving. Robert Hintz, the site's founder, said, letting fatties roam the site is a direct threat to our business model. It's awful, right? We laugh at it. But the church can become, if we forget the gospel, if we forget the, the, the problem that is inherent to my nature and yours, if we grow tired of being reminded of how sinful we are and plumbing the depths of it, We'll start to think of Christcovenant.church as the beautifulpeople.com. When the only thing beautiful here is Jesus. And so Paul goes from plumbing the depths of what sin has done to us, destroying us morally and intellectually and spiritually and relationally, to one of the great but nows of the gospel. Now, we know that whatever the law says, Paul says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, that means to relate to God purely on the law of what I have done, right? To be under the law is to relate to God purely and simply on the basis of my law-keeping or my law-breaking. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, Jew, Greek, Gentile, may become guilty of sin. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, declared righteous before God. For by the law, Paul says, is the knowledge of sin. If you, if you relate to God on the basis of law, which the Jews did, we can do this by ourselves. Like the three-year-old, one of my children, 18 months, when they're learning to walk, they would stand there and they would say, I do it myself. And you'd go, I don't think it's going to work out very well for you. No, I do it myself. There was one of their first phrases, do it myself. And then they'd go, okay, do it yourself. And they'd just go, and they'd fall flat on their face. And they'd get up crying, no, 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 I, 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 do, it, I do it myself. <laughs> I'll take your hand. We can do this together. No, I do it myself. <laughs> so that was the Jew, right? I, I, don't need, I don't need a savior. I can do it myself. I can keep the law. 
And Paul says, no, you can't, because doing it yourself just points out how you've messed it all up. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God apart from the law. That's an amazing statement, apart from your law-keeping. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's rooted in the Old Testament, Paul says. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short, have failed to live a life worthy of the glory of God. And Paul says there's, there's another way to be righteous rather than under the law, a righteousness apart from the law. And Paul says four things about it very quickly. He says it's a righteousness that comes without work. It's a righteousness apart from the law. It's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't work your way up to it. You believe your way into it. And it's not even… Your faith isn't something you give to God, as if you give God your faith, and God goes, let me look at your faith. Hmm, It's good enough. Pass. Next. Let me see your faith. No, too much unbelief. That's not what it is. Faith isn't giving God anything. Faith is coming to God needing everything. Dirty hands, filthy life, no hope, undone, unclean, and saying, Father, give me Jesus or I die. Without work, without cost, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Without cost. It's free. You don't give God anything. You don't earn your way into it. It's given as a gift. Without works, without cost, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's also a righteousness that comes without work, without cost, without exception. To all and on all who believe. I love the way Paul multiplies these prepositions. To all and on all who believe. It comes to all and comes on all who believe. Like what he says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, you never outgrow the principle of faith. You never begin with faith and then get to a place where you can do it by yourself like your dad with the bicycle when he runs behind you, and he pushes you to get going on the bike. When you get going, he leaves his hands go, and you cycle by yourself. It's not like that in the gospel. You never start by faith with God pushing you, and then you can push yourself. No, it's faith from first to last, without exception, to all and on all who believe. In other words, no matter how bad you are, if you believe, that righteousness will come on you. 
And no matter how good you are, if you don't believe in Christ, that righteousness will pass by you. It will not fall on you. Because the only way to get it is through faith. And it's not the strength of faith, but the presence of faith. A weak faith brings a strong Christ. One of the problems some of you have is you make a savior of your faith. Is my faith strong enough to save me, you think? Oh, I don't know. It's pretty bad. And the devil goes, I agree. Look at it. It's terrible. It's full of unbelief. Right enough, so it is. And before you know it, you're lost in despair as you're looking at your faith. We don't look at our faith. We send faith on the great job and business of looking at the Savior. Faith is nothing. It's faith in Christ that is everything. Don't examine your faith. Examine your Savior. Without works, without cost, without exception, and then without compromise, this wonderful gospel allows God to be just and merciful. being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away wrath from us onto Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation through His blood by faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The great question, what about the Old Testament? If we're saved by Christ, what about those before Christ died? And Paul says it's easy. God was so confident that His Son would do the thing. He passed by in patience all of the sins that had been committed in the Old Testament, sins that deserved His judgment, but He he knew in His heart that my Son will take care of that. And so, in God's forbearance, He passed by all of those sins determining the day he would pass those sins on to Christ, and his Son would bear them away. And if God can have such confidence in his Son, can't you have such confidence in his Son? Can't you have such confidence in his Son? And why, Paul says, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has to be just. So, how can God be merciful? By taking all of our sins and joining us to Christ so closely that our sins become his very own, and he's banished to hell because of them, and all of his righteousness becomes ours as we receive to heaven. That's the gospel. And Paul says, well, where's boasting then? Because like the Jews, like this temper tantrum, I want something to boast about. (laughs) And Paul says, it's excluded. It's ruled out of court. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since we conclude that there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Same gospel for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Well, do we then make void the law? Certainly not. 
On the contrary, we establish the law. More about that later. That's another for the elders later on. But the gospel, the law drives us to Christ, showing us that we may need to be saved. And Christ takes us, saves us, fills us with the Spirit, and sends us back to the law to show us how to live. But that's got no part in earning the salvation. That's the point. But as a church, we should never tire of hearing about our sinfulness and never tire of hearing of Christ's worthiness and the glories of the gospel. We plumb the depths that we might explore the heights. It's the left and the right hand of gospel preaching that builds the church like a boxer. The left hand are, de- are the depths of our need. The right hand, the heights of God's mercy and God's grace. And if you don't have the one, you'll never really feel your need of the other. And if you never really feel your need of the other, you might end up sidelining the whole thing and walking out with ill-deserved confidence and think, I can do it by myself. Which would be the death knell of any and every church. And I'm confident in God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and His work in your elders that Christ's covenant will not be that kind of church. But keep the gospel central. It must be the great thing that we're about as a church. What are we about? We're about the gospel. I am a great sinner. At the end of his life, John Newton said that. He lost everything in his mind. He could hardly remember anything, but he said this. I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and I have a great Savior. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, I thank you, O God, for your mercies to us. Let us only boast in Jesus. Let us never boast in our heritage, our advantages, our blessings, our knowledge, but only boast in Jesus. Without Him, the best we can be is lost, and with Him, the worst we can be is saved. In Christ's name, amen.